Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Verdict Podcast. I am Linus Leo Lampy, the Triple L, and I am hosted, co-hosted by my favourite person in the law cohort, Ed Dempsey. Introduce yourself, Ed. Today, we have a very special episode. But before we begin, we must mention a few amazing opportunities. If you have a dream, if you want to fight them on the beaches and you want to become the next best public speaker, well, let me tell you about the Public Speaking Society run by Pav. Also has Emmanuel, Patricia and Nana on the council. It's a fantastic opportunity to get over your stage fright. But that's not the only special thing we have to announce for you today. Mooting is beginning with the Flamang Society and Anton Doyle, our own communications director, is running it. Ed, do you want to tell them about mooting? Yeah, it's a great way to get involved in the legal career as a as looking towards your future. It simulates a courtroom and you just get to learn really interesting things about how you deal with day-to-day life as a barrister or Sometimes we run solicitor roles alongside it if you're interested in that as well. You can find everything you need to know about the verdict on our Instagram. The link will be in the description. Please follow our YouTube channel. Now, today, ladies and gentlemen, we have a friend and associate of Exeter. Uh, interesting, one of the most interesting people that I've ever met. He can keep a conversation flowing like the next man, unless the next man is me. It is Damon (laughs) Baker, ladies and gentlemen. Damon, hello. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, listeners. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. We were, we, Ed and I, uh, Ed's had a better night last night than I have, haven't you, Ed? Uh, No, yeah, it was, (laughs) it was a little bit. Yeah, fuzzy, but it's fine now. So you were in Dallas um, earlier earlier this month or last month, I believe. Then. But before we jump into Dallas, I, l- please remind me to talk to you about moot court. Uh, what I did, I did some moot court when I was in law school. And when you mentioned uh-huh. that, it set off a few uh, memories. And yeah, no, we, we definitely will talk around. about moot court. So what, what was, you went to university. Talk to us a bit about your uni experience, because obviously our listeners, you know, love hearing uni experiences and all the, the, the barkles and the <laughs> shenanigans that go on at uni. <laughs> How much time do we have, right? <laughs> Not enough, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because you guys know, um, and the, your, your listeners might not. Let me just give a little bit background on who I am. So Damon Baker, I grew up in Los Angeles. And when I was maybe 17 years old is when I decided which particular university I was going to go to. So in California, we have what's called the UC system. You have UCLA, UC Berkeley. My school was UC San Diego. It's in La Jolla, and we were about a kilometer away from one of the best beaches, one of the best beaches in California. And I, my, I had started surfing about a year before that. So I chose UCSD. We'll get on to surfing. We'll get on to surfing, believe you me. We, we're at Union Cornwall, so it's a, it's a big deal here in Cornwall. Yeah, anyway, continue. Yep. So, um, and actually, I'm going to tell you, uh, and I'll tell you the story of literally the moment, I mean, like the moment in time when I chose UCSD, because it's something that has stuck with me, and it's a bit of a theme in my life. So I was 17, and I had been uh, visiting other college campuses. So I was only looking at four schools at the time. I was looking at Stanford, UCLA, UCSD, and USC. And I was on a walking tour of UC San Diego. And at the time, it was, or still is, in the middle of a big eucalyptus forest. But at the time, the forest was a lot larger than it is now. Anyway, so we're walking down this one street and they were pointing out some things over in the buildings. And I was looking the opposite direction 
there's a bit of a theme there, right? I was looking the other direction from everybody else, and I saw a guy on a mountain bike, and he was winding his way through the eucalyptus trees. And at one moment, he hit a jump. And honestly, you guys, I, it was like time stood still. I was so focused on this guy on the bike, and I was mesmerized by him. And he went, he hit the jump, and as soon as he landed, I was like, this is where I want to come to school. I just want to be in this environment because his freedom was something I wanted for myself. So I chose UCSD and few decisions in my life. Um, there's only a few decisions I really know I got right. And that was one of them. One of the best schools in the country, very heavily focused on like hard sciences and mathematics and, and economics. And um, in the U.S., most schools are four years. I was at UCSD for five years because I love uni that much. But I learned a tremendous amount. So um, I'll tell you about what I majored in, and then I'll move on to law school. So when I started off, I was an engineering major. So I was taking you know, physics and chemistry and, and calculus. That was one of my minors, in fact, calculus. And I, you know, I didn't have the study um, I didn't have the, the hardcore um, commitment to studying that a lot of my colleagues did in the engineering course. And, you know, I was partying, having a good time and, and experiencing that freedom, <laughs> right? <laughs> I did a, I'll bet. Uh, it was, yeah. and, you know, what do you do when you're 17 years old, right? Yeah, so, of course. Um, I ended up shifting to economics. And I'm really glad I kept economics as a major. So in the U.S., a lot of schools, you have a major and one minor. But I ended up keeping two minors. So I majored in economics. I was a minor in calculus. And I kept a minor in philosophy. Because I like practical application of education. And I love logic and arguing. And that's where philosophy came in. I was really understanding schools of thought. And that was really compelling. So I stayed with a philosophy minor. It was only until fourth year of college or uni that I decided I want to go to law school. But law had always been on my mind, honestly, ever since I was about eight years old, because of I like to argue with people, not just uh, students and stuff, but teachers. <laughs> that was something that really, as you can imagine, right, you get, you know, some 30, 40 year old, 50 year old teacher, and I'm like an eight year old kid arguing with them. And a lot of times they didn't like that. And they would say, you know, you'd make a really good lawyer. And they'd say it in a pejorative sense. But one day it kind of stuck. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I would make a good lawyer. Better than, better than elementary school teacher, you know, that kind of a thing. And so um, that was on my mind. Like I said, fourth year in college is when I really decided to take it seriously. And once again, with regards to decisions that I don't regret, I know I got that one right as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and we can get into more detail later. But I think being a lawyer, being a student of the law, really means you're dedicating your life to learning. And that to me is, I mean, that leads to, to a very rich and, and um, a very rich existence. What do you think that the modern day lawyer needs skill wise? Wow, it has changed, I think, mm. on the periphery. So there's a core set of skills every lawyer, I think, needs to have and does learn in law school. One. One of the things at least we're taught in the U.S. is understand what the issue is. What is the issue? That's the key. Once you can isolate the issue, then you can um, apply the right law to that issue. And then you can kind of analyze and come up with a conclusion. But it's really quick thinking. You know, other people 
can get to the issue as well. It's just lawyers I have kind of found, and this is a general statement, we tend to get to the issue quicker than other people. Doesn't mean we're smarter than them or anything like that. It's just we've been trained to isolate whatever it is as the most important thing to deal with in the moment. It's almost like triage in a, in a, in a medical sense, right? And You're actually um, echoing exactly what the Clifford Chance lawyer said mm. to us the other day. He said getting to the issue is something that most people can do, but the skill of a lawyer is they get to the issue very quickly and are very good at identifying where the issue is exactly in a matter of, you know, however long it takes. And then solving the issue is where the legal stuff actually comes in. You know, identifying it is 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 just the, you know, initiation stage of a job of a lawyer, really. That's right. That is the beginning of it. And what, you know, think about the skills kind of behind that. What what is it, you know, what what skills are you employing to get you to isolate an issue? One is we we learn focus. I think we are pretty good at understanding context as well. And there's, um, there's also a compartmentalization piece that comes in. So by that, I mean, if we're only focused on spotting the issue, oftentimes, and this is a skill that I'm going to talk about, right? Oftentimes we miss the more human element. So it's, you know, did John rob Bobby? Yes or no? Well, yeah, but you know, did Bobby beat him up the week before? I mean, what's the context in that? And one of the things I really think, not just older lawyers like me, younger ones like you as well, need to focus on is that human element. What are the soft skills that need to, to be employed? Empathy is a real big one. I think that's absolutely essential because having a finely honed sense of empathy is, is going to help you serve your clients a lot better. That's one. The other is on the business side of things. Linus, love the suit. You're looking great. Ed, can't really see you so well. You're backlit. What's going on? <laughs> He's hung over. It's probably for the best. There you go. <laughs> but it's really on the business side of things. And, uh, you know, I am maybe a rare breed in that I'm, I'm not only a lawyer, I've got, you know, I'm licensed in the state of California to practice law, but I also uh, have an MBA. And I went to business school, I'd say five years after I graduated law school. And I have found, at least for me, that's a very powerful combination of degrees. Now, what do I do with it? That's on me. But having law, having business as a background, for me, it has enabled me to look at the world in a different way and spot opportunities where others might not. But it means I'm constantly learning in two areas, I think, essential to lead um to lead a positive life mm. well that's really uh, really insightful i think what you've said is 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 um applicable to many of the listeners that will be listening because i think people quite often talk about okay so we need to learn acceptance intention to make legal relations consideration and that's great and you, you know the smartest uh one percent in a law degree will just get a first the whole time and stuff like that but what you're not actually always getting measured on, what your your end grade doesn't say is your ability to make, you know, create actual legal relations. So to create networking opportunities, to talk to clients, to make sure you do exercise empathy when dealing with tough situations. So I think that's, you know, advice that people should heed who are, who are listening. Um, so you left law school and then w- let's move into your, you know, kind of field of, of work. What was your first kind of career you know, starting opportunity that you got and how did you edit? Yeah. 
So actually, I'm going to tell you another a little story because it also puts it in context, right? You, oh, brilliant. I like my stories, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, story time. Law school in the U.S. is three years, three academic years. You have two summers. What most law students do is they try to find an internship at a law firm so that they can work in the summer, one or second summer, and then get a job offer when they graduate. Similar to when we were doing the walking tour at UCSD, everybody's doing one thing. I'm looking the other direction, right? And so for me, I wanted to do something completely different. And in the U.S., at least at my law school at the time, they had a, what was called a summer law program. And during half of the summer, they would take a group of students, in our case, uh, to Oxford, to, um, where did I stay? At UNIF College. So they put us up in the university college dorms in Oxford. We had two classes, one that was taught by one of the law professors from my school, and I went to SMU, which is based in Dallas. And then the other class was taught by an Oxford tutor. And I, I had one of the best summers of my life, not just on the learning side of things, and I was in Oxford, it's a fantastic place to be to learn, but the way that students in Oxford learn the law is very different from the way we in the US learn it. In the US, it's lecture-based. You read your cases, you come in, they employ the Socratic method. I don't know if you guys have that here, you know what that is? Uh, reading the facts of the case, uh, or no, stuff like that, Socratic, or no? No, Socratic method is a little bit different. It's more confrontational. So imagine a class of about 100, 110 students in an amphitheater setting, right? At the bottom is the professor, and he or she has a seating chart in front of him. Or oh, yes, yes. Not just the seating chart, but our pictures are on it. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And it's like trial by fire, right? So you have your, um, your nightly assignment of reading cases. You come in prepared to recite the facts and understand what, you know, you know, what's the issue? What's the rule of law? What's the applicability? Did the court get it right or wrong? And why or why not, right? And the professor will be like, okay, Mr. Lampy, am I saying your name right? Yeah, that's correct. Tell me, do you think, you know, the lower court or whatever, appellate court got the, uh, the, the judgment or the ruling right in this case? Why or why not? And then they just grill you for however long they want to. But part in the Socratic method is not just that little bit. It's really, okay, that's great. That's really interesting, Mr. Lampy. But what about you, Mr. Dempsey? Do you, do you agree with him? Yes or no? Or you, Miss Smith, you think these guys got it right? And so the Socratic method is really about bringing others into the conversation to really analyze different viewpoints. It reminds me of the film. Uh, I think they they showed it. it was in, I think it was about Harvard Law School actually with Tim Bottoms, The Paper Chase. Yes, that's it. I'll get my editors to click that in a bit of it in. Mr. Hart, what damages do you think the doctor should pay? What did the doctor promise? There was a promise to fix the hand back to the way it was before it was burned. And the result of the operation? The hand was much worse than before he went to the doctor. How should the court measure the damages? What should the doctor pay the boy? But no, uh, yeah, brilliant scene where the, the old, old uh, lecturer is basically the grilling about law of contract on uh, on Tim Bottoms. <laughs> yeah, right. fantastic. If, if I remember, he nailed it. He got it quite right. But it's, you know, it is confrontational. It's intimidating, but it's a great training ground. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, where were we going with that one? Uh, the difference between how it is in America with teaching to how it is in the UK. Yeah, that's right. And so 
I, I, I liked both methods. I mean, it was a little scary. You know, I had the sweaty palms and all that kind of stuff when they called me a few times. And um, it was, um, it was so different in Oxford. So in Oxford, at least with the Oxford tutor, it was the tutorial method, which is there were six students in the class and we would go to, it turned out to be a guy, but we would go to his office and we would just sit and talk about what we had read that week. And there wasn't confrontation. It was exploratory in nature, but it was a lot more collegial. Mm. And I found that I learned more because I was involved in a conversation as opposed to trying to posture and pose in an intimidating environment with a hundred of my peers judging me. Mm. I agree. I, I think I like, I mean, Ed and I know that the way the lecturers teach us, you know, we'll have a lecture and then a lecture they don't actually like to ask us any questions or talk to us. They want to get through this content. Mm. So when we do, I've done our reading, we get to this seminar, you know, 30 minutes of it at least, you know, is just a general conversation about a case. And we do have the, you know, the do you agree? And, and why do you say that, Mr. Dempsey? And, and, you know, but it's just a bit different. And you do learn quite quickly and also learn outside of just the case and the implications it has on other cases and judgments, which I think is interesting. So what do you prefer? I like the tutorial method. I really did. I, like mm. I said, I, I found that I learned a lot more and it just stuck. And you know, that's me, that's my learning style. That's my, um, you know, that's my personality. Some people like the confrontational bit. Some people were training to be trial attorneys. And so they love the Socratic method. So that was, uh, summer number one in Oxford. I don't know if we even talked about this before, you guys, but um, back in the the mid '90s, so it was the summer of '94. There was a guy named O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson doesn't need uh, much of an introduction. O.J. probably is one of the best football players that ever played this game, and he last week he announced his retirement. But he's been doing a lot of acting, so I'm sure that he's going to continue to be in the public eye. The Los Angeles police are now searching for him. Simpson has been charged with two counts of murder, with two counts, that is, for the murder of his ex-wife and her male friend. Right, so you remember the O.J. Simpson trial? I, I, yeah, I watched uh, uh, the documentary. Yeah. Okay, it's so the lawyer on that was a guy named Johnny Cochran. At the time, my dad knew Johnny Cochran. And I met Cochran and Carl Douglas who was one of the other attorneys on the case who worked in Cochran's office. I met them the summer of 94. No, it was the summer of 95, because I'd already done one year of law school. So I'd done my Oxford program, came back to the US, met them, and they invited me to one day of the trial. And this is, oh yeah, this was in the summer of 95. So 94 is when it all went down, I think, and then 94 five was the yeah. trial. And so I, you know, I told everybody I knew, I was like, I'm going to go to one day of the trial. And so, you know, on CNN, <laughs> it's like my mom, my aunt, all, all, of them, all these friends of mine in LA saw me walk through the media blitz into the courthouse. Um, and if we have a few minutes, I'll, I'll go through that day. Cause it was a real trip for me, man. Oh, we'd love that. Yeah. yeah. Please do. Yeah. So I, I'm just going to take a step back in time. So, um, you know, I met Cochran and, and Douglas and they said, Hey, you want to come to one day of the trial? Fine. They locked it in. I then arrived at their offices that morning and there were two other law students. There was a woman from, I think, Berkeley, so Bolt Hall. And it was a guy from Hastings, which is also um, a, a good law school up in San Francisco. And the three of us, I think maybe it's one other person, but anyway, the three of us jumped into, and I swear to goodness, 
at the time, Cochran drove a purple Rolls Royce. <laughs> Who else did he represent? Didn't he represent? Uh, he had um, the other big celebrity murder trial that he had was Todd something. It was a guy on a show called Different Strokes. Oh, uh, yeah. I wish my father was here. He'd be able to rattle off his name. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, but he was, he was like a relatively famous like child. Yeah. And he'd have been accused of killing somebody in a crack house in L.A. And Cochran got him acquitted. Mm. So, so we jump in the back of the rolls. We drive out to downtown L.A., which is where the big courthouse was. On the way up, you know, we're driving like along one of the streets, really close to the courthouse, remember? And there was another lawyer walking up the street. And it was F. Lee Bailey, which was kind of like an older white guy with glasses, I remember. Yeah. So, hey, guys, we'll see you inside. So we go around to the front, and that's where the big media blitz was. So we go through the media blitz. We go upstairs. Um, the security was pretty tight. And one of the things I remember about this is they took my California driver's license, they looked at my ID, but then they they retained it <laughs> because you, I wasn't getting that thing back until I left. So I guess they were really controlled about, number one, who could go in, but they also didn't want anybody doing anything untoward. So they knew who you were. So we go in and in the very, it was the first couple of hours, I remember, um, they were just doing... They were trying to see what evidence they could admit. So the jury wasn't in yet. So it was the defense team, prosecuting team, and they were submitting, um, you know, like offers of evidence, offers of proof, I think they're called. And if the judge allowed it, then it became a part of the evidence pack that the jury would then um, have access to. And the day, I I remember the day that I went, because there was this Indian doctor who was going to be giving evidence that day. And he spelled his, he said his name and then he said his name for the court. And he had like this really long name. So at some point in my life, I'm going to look through some of the old videotapes of, of that day of the OJ trial. Cause it should be pretty easy to find, you know, Indian doctor testifying. And then um, I remember where I was sitting. I was kind of like in the front row of the, of the gallery as it were. And I was on the far left-hand side. So if you're the judge, you look out at the, at the people I'm on the, on his right-hand side. Uh, he came out of our left so he came out of the judge's right you know like stage left I guess you'd call it and yeah. when he came out he looked at his daughter and he kind of nodded at her and then he looked at me and I guess he thought I was the boyfriend or something <laughs> so he like nodded at me something <laughs> so he like nodded at me too like hey man and I'm like oh, oh. Yeah, hey <laughs> yeah. the oh, juice nodded at me the juice nodded at me <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I gave him the what's up hey man what's going on <laughs> you know I'm there with Cochran I'm there with his defense attorney now, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent because I know a lot of people get sensitive. You know, how could you support a guy who you know killed these people? And it's like, okay. Well, 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 he was acquitted in a court of law, so... Right, but, there, you know, public opinion was very divided at the time. Yeah. Everybody knew that he did it, right? And everyone knew, but that's not the point of a criminal trial, right? The prosecution has its burden of proof. And if they don't meet that proof, the defendant gets acquitted. That's it. Now, whether or not he did it, A, that's on him, right? But if they don't prove their burden, what can anybody do? It's like, so what do you think? Do you think, think he did it? I think he did it. But, you know, so what? What, are, you know, the, what is it? The glove I'm... didn't fit. Hmm? The glove didn't fit. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. 
Yeah, the cleft in the no, brain. Yeah. But you know, people get all wrapped up about this stuff. Oh, he did it, he did it, did it. It's like, okay, yeah, but we have we have this system for a reason. Why? Because the last thing we want is for the state to engage in summary executions because everybody knows he or she did it. That's the last thing you want. We've seen that in history. It's not a good place to be. So what you do is you have your system. If the system is flawed, you figure out ways to fix the system. We don't want vigilante justice ever. So that's my little bit on the prosecutor failing to meet its burden in this case. If he did it and everybody knows it, why didn't you guys do a better job? Oh, he played the race card. You know what? I'm glad because that is what a criminal defense attorney is supposed to do. He's not supposed to play a fair game. He's supposed to take every every lawful step he can or she can to acquit his or her client. And so this crap about playing the race card, it's like, look at it, I look at it this way. If the police, if Mark Furman, which is the one who was using the N-word a lot during, during that time, if he hadn't have dealt a race card, Cochran and the defense team wouldn't have had it to play. So that's just one thing to bear in mind. If racism did not exist in our society, people who are victims of racism wouldn't cry foul. Mm. I think I think we'll we'll get on to race in a second. Um, but I just wanted Sorry, to say I, that, I went off on that tangent. if 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 anyone is interested in in watching the OJ Simpson like recreation of trial, it's on Netflix. Uh, OJ Simpson versus the people, very good. I highly suggest yeah. it. Um, so getting onto 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 race, what what is what you've just been in America? What what's it like over there at the moment with regards to everything? I mean, not just race, COVID, the political climate in general. What, you know. Yeah, yeah. What did you see? I was so I was in Dallas on business for uh, so I, I just I landed back in the UK on um it was Saturday so I was there for like a full week, and you know I had done two years in Dallas. I did my last year of law school in LA because I knew I wasn't going to live in Dallas. So when I graduated, seriously, I was just like, no, there's no way. So I went back, and I had been I've been back to Dallas a few times, you know, to visit colleagues and sometimes for business over the last few years, and so I went back a little bit of trepidation on this trip admittedly, because I'm, I'm not a fan of Trump. And I just thought Texas is normally a red state. Wow. Talk about going into the hornet's nest. And so I tried to be cool. I go in with a somewhat open mind, but I had a little bit of trepidation. And I was pleasantly surprised by how, how few references I saw to Trump. Now, I was in a bubble because I was there meeting other lawyers, meeting other people in a business context. But I engaged with a few people who weren't part of my circle. You know, I engaged with some white people who weren't part of my circle. And we talked openly about what it was like to, to live, um, you know, in a, in a Trump America, what it was like for me to be living in the UK mm-hmm. and a majority Tory government and COVID, absolutely. So visually, what did I notice? I noticed a lot of people your age not wearing their masks. Oh no! In, Amer- in America, to be fair, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you've got a president that says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is going to infect, disinfect, in our arms," and you know, like, I, I, I can't expect them to, you know, truthfully take COVID seriously. To be perfectly honest, but we here in the UK, I mean, I know for a fact Ed is an avid social distancer, and so am I. Well, yeah, um, I, I, I think generally young people are doing quite a good job in the UK. I know we get uni students. Oh, right, right. Unis, Let's calm down. The cases yeah. are going up, like. Yeah, but I know you used to get blamed by um, Boris Johnson. But yeah, I, I personally think we're doing quite a good job. It's actually just a system failure on behalf of the whole population. I yeah, so. I think 
Yeah, and another point I'm going to make about what I saw in the U.S. and I, you know, hey guys, sorry, but testing over here is a shambles. So I, one of my coworkers, and you know, no joke, on like the Wednesday night, she called us or sent an email around saying, "I tested today and I'm positive. You guys need to get tested." And I was like, "Oh great!" So Thursday, I went onto Google. I typed in rapid response COVID testing. A number of centers popped up within about a 20 minute Uber ride from where I was in Dallas. I picked one, I paid $200. I waited for about 15 minutes for them to see me. They stuck the swab up. 20 minutes later, I had my results. What? Really? But for $200, we've got to make that clear. You see, uh, in England, it's free. And I, you know, some people can talk about that as an issue. The NHS, I'm not going to get into that. But yeah. yeah, it's free, but we're also in Cornwall, which makes it kind of hard because there's only one major hospital near us. So you don't I actually kind of get. You don't need a hospital to run these tests. I would. I didn't go to a hospital. I went to it was like a clinic. So it was basically um, like, yeah, you know, like a little clinic that had ten people working in it. It wasn't a hospital. Mm. So. You know, it, it you, you got tested. What was the result? If, if we, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. brilliant, brilliant. I wouldn't have brought this up if it was positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The NHS will be on you. You've got to self-isolate for more than days. Yeah. My thinking was, is okay, cool. And then I flew on Friday. So I'm like, okay, cool. I am in the house, as you can tell now. And I don't, yeah. you know, I, I'm pretty good about, um, you know, exposure and whatnot. But mm. I was very, very impressed by that. Um, but even though that was a good experience and even though I had a great time meeting people and, and going through a lot of actually really good legal documentation work, um, it's not enough to get me to move back to that place now. Yeah. And, and why, why wouldn't you move back? Is there a specific issue? Um, or is there a, is it a collection of many issues? Collection of many. So I've just generally I have a way better quality of life here in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, I am a U.S. tax, U.K. taxpayer. I've been, you know, in this country 18 years, I've got the passport. So I am a British citizen. Therefore, I've got the right to complain about things, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, this is home. I have two kids who are 12 and 10 years old. I'm not going anywhere. But mm-hmm. even before I had kids, I had the opportunity to leave and I wanted to stay. And it's, it's once again, one of the best decisions I've ever made is to stay here and enjoy life in the UK. So did you see any protesting when you went to America? Because I, um, you know, during COVID, the rhythm was really, you know, picking up for George Floyd protests and then it fizzled out a bit and then it came to the UK, tearing down monuments of, you know, people who have been racist in the past. But did you see any, you know, starts of ignitions of protests or? I didn't, I didn't see any protests. Um... But the time, so, you know, George Floyd was in May. There was a big, there was a, uh, like you said, a big surge, but um, it seems like things may have dwindled down. The other thing too, is I was in a a bit of a bubble. You know, I was in like a a, a very um, kind of privileged part of town. Do you feel, do you feel disappointed that the protests have fizzled down? I don't feel disappointed. I feel Mm -hmm. disappointed if there's no, government response in the positive to the protests. The protests, I think, are fantastic, you know, Mm. not just in the U.S., because, you know, that's where a lot of this stuff goes down. You know, these unjustified killings of unarmed black men, of which I'm one, right? So, yeah, I definitely feel the weight of that police presence. 
even before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, even before um, Amadou Diallo. I mean, so ever since I was a kid, I've felt a bit of tension from the police. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles and the LAPD does not have the best track record when it comes to dealing with people of color. So I've never been a victim of a police shooting. I have been intimidated a number of times by the cops. So this goes back into one of the reasons why I enjoy being in the UK. I don't have the same trepidation in dealing with police here that I do in the US. I just want to put a side note in to say that the UK is, is not innocent at all. You know, there have been deaths here, you know, Zil Ford, uh, Cynthia Jarrett. But yeah, I, do you, are you saying then that you think it's better managed in the UK or uh, that there's a less likely likelihood of, of a black man or, or a person of another ethnicity getting bugged by the police in an unjust way? I think it's the latter, but because your racial history here is so different from what mm. we've had in the U.S. Yes. So you know, mm. there's so many factors that go into the racial strife that we see in the U.S. And they're just not, they're not mirrored here, thankfully. You know, mm. you don't want to have that kind of crap over here. Now, that said, I, I, I think it's good that people are protesting here, there, literally any time, you know, it's a general statement, right? Anytime people have beef with their government, they should be able to take to the streets and make their opinions known. I agree. I don't like the property destruction. So I not do. the tearing down of the statues. You don't, you don't agree with that. Now that's different for me, property. Cause I'm thinking like buildings, uh, buildings, houses, burning. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about property. So um, you've got a bunch of protesters here protesting really peacefully, you know, using their freedom of speech right to try and evoke change in, you know, the political parties. And then you've got a bunch of people here who go, I know, guys, let's just burn this building down. I believe that there's a clear line that's been crossed between those two versions of protesting. And I believe that no matter the reasons that people are burning down buildings, it actually harms the protesters that are protesting peacefully because their message that they're trying to put a clock across gets tainted by crime. Um, are you on the same wavelength with regards to that? Is, is that how you... So the message gets diluted in the end, right? So yeah. one side, peaceful protests. I've been involved in a number of peaceful protests. I've taken my kids to one of the climate marches recently. I'm, mm. I'm a big believer in that, make your voice heard. But when it comes to burning things down, it's like, okay, look, I, I understand why they do it to some extent. You know, sometimes mm. people just get- So, so do I, so do I. And they just, they need to lash out and instead of hitting somebody or shooting somebody, which I know is an impulse and we've seen that as well, mm. they, they, they gotta burn something or break a window. So I understand that there's that frustration that needs to be released, but I don't agree with it leading to property damage because somebody's got to pay. And some people say, oh, it's just the insurance company. It's like, yeah, but you know, that's somebody's business, dude. Somebody mm-hmm. has put their heart and soul into that. Now, if you're burning down, in the US they were target, targeting, they were going after Target stores. They're literally called Target, right? So they were burning down Targets. and another- Target, we have them in Australia. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's an insurance company and it's not so much heart and soul behind it, but there were a lot of not just black owned businesses, but just entrepreneurial businesses, one owner, sole proprietorship. Yeah. They're perfectly grown. And that's a shame. That's a real tragedy. Well, because I was just thinking if you obviously you said you're from Los Angeles, you and uh, in the early 90s, what and all that, that was probably, I think, one of the 
sort of like biggest examples of sort of just mass rioting where people took to the streets and just destroyed shops so like not recklessly but went around just destroying everybody's shops not specific yeah, that's right. when Watts, the Watts riots were, I think, in 68, but you're thinking about Rodney King. Oh, uh, yeah, no, Watts, yeah, Rodney King, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So we'll let you off the hook there. Yeah, so yeah. The, so Rodney King, so a black man got beat by four different police officers in L.A. Uh, they were on trial. They were acquitted by the very first jury. People went absolutely haywire as well they should because it's ridiculous. You know, the guys, these guys were caught on videotape hitting him just over 80 times. Yeah. Um, you know, kicks, punches, police batons, beat the guy beyond recognition. Luckily he survived. So then the riots happened. And I was actually in university at the time, even though, you know, I'm from the city. And it was a, it was a real shame, because you're right. People, you know, they just went out of their homes and the first thing they saw was the corner shop. And so they, they started to, um, you know, to burn and, and loot, which is a, you know, it's a real shame there. There was also, there was, I don't know if you guys knew about this though, but there were a lot of um, corner shops owned by Korean Americans yeah. in a oh, lot of black neighborhoods. And I can't remember this young girl's name, but it was a young black is, girl. Is it Latoya or something like that? I really can't remember her name. I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. She's about 16 years old. She stole, allegedly, and even if she stole it, a bottle of orange juice from one of these stores. The Korean woman proprietor shot the girl and killed her. So it's like, okay, a bottle of orange juice. Really? Mm. You're gonna kill somebody over a bottle of orange juice? In America, yeah, and that's that's a problem. That is that is quite shocking, actually, to hear that. Oh, yeah. um, what, what you were mentioned the statues as a as a different you know different property damage. I'd be really interested in hearing your opinions on the statues because I have mine, but I, I, I would like to hear yours first. Um, yeah. For, okay, so which statues? Right in the U.S., it's going to be these Confederate soldiers. And so, you know, everybody, I think, knows the Confederate. So, you know, back in the 1860, when the Civil War ended, I think, 1863 in the U.S., the big war between the Confederates in the South, the Union Army in the North. Abraham Lincoln was the president at the time. Slavery was, you know, thinking about being, he's thinking about abolishing slavery. Southern states mm-hmm. went nuts and got all angry. And <laughs> basically, what are they fighting over? To enslave an entire race of people. Yeah, there's the economic argument, but come on, it's about slavery. Yeah. So war breaks out because the South states wanted to secede. Lincoln said, no, we're keeping, you, we're keeping this union together. And a civil war broke out. So in the South, there were a number of what I guess some people will call war heroes. And there are a number of statues commemorating their involvement in the Civil War. Just think about that for a minute. A war was fought and lost by the Southern states. Yet they rightfully want to commemorate that. How do you commemorate it is the question. You can put them in history books and people can learn about it. I got no problem with that. Mm. But you have these statues that are put up, which are celebrations of life, right? Celebration of the cause that these guys, all guys, believed in. Mm. How do you think that makes a black person feel when you have a statue up that's commemorating the life of someone who wanted to enslave them. I don't, I don't do have to think. I've spoken, I've spoken to uh, some of my mates and they just think it's a kick in the teeth, which is, which is exactly what it is. I mean, it, in a similar fashion, you know, what I compare it to is, okay, so you've got, you, there was a statue of Jimmy Savile when he was alive. 
Now, Jimmy Savile opened many children's hospitals with his money and people around can justifiably see that as a good deed. However, the reason he did that was to use it as a place to abuse. Now, just because some people do some good things now, okay, for example, one of those Confederate soldiers, although he's fighting to keep slavery, which is just an awful, repugnant thing that I hate even mentioning, he may have been protecting his family from someone one day uh, against another soldier and protect his family and got shot in the line of duty. Now, just because he's done that one good thing, that does not outweigh what he was fighting for and the bad things that he intended to succeed over. So I think there's that throw up, you see? And I think that's what some people who um, are not racist but are not against racism have the issue with. And I think that's wrong. I think that no one good deed can outweigh uh, a travesty such as slavery. And I think the exact same with Jimmy Savile, hence why I was happy when his statue was torn to the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, that's the way I look at it. Do you think that's a, a good way of looking at it? But it's so it's one of these things where and this is and this is where I think um, reason and logic really outweigh very real, very real human emotions. So on a lot of the white southern side, the and even here, I've noticed it here, too, where it's like you're trying to erase our history. You're trying to erase our heritage. I don't I'm not I'm not thinking that when I ask or demand that that statue be taken down. I'm not trying to erase history. I'm trying to put that man's, and it's, why is it always a guy, right? I'm trying to put that guy's deed or series of deeds or thoughts into context. I'm trying to put that statue into context. So let's have a conversation about it. One of the things I really dislike about often the other side is they're telling me what I'm thinking. You're trying to erase my history. And I say, no, I'm not. If you shut your mouth, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm. And that's hard to do because people get all, you know, they get all indignant about their position and you, you, you. And it's like, hang on, I'm happy to have a conversation. If you're happy. Should to we just, should we just down, define what history is? Oh, yeah, because yeah. like we're talking, we're talking about, you know, erasing someone's history, staring, tearing down a statue that is in sense a glorification yeah. is not tearing down history because you can still read about slavery. You can still read about World War One, World War Two, what Winston Churchill did, his speeches. You can still read about this in history books. That's yeah. history. You're not erasing history. And may I also had um, that Dave the rapper said uh, that in in his song Black. I don't know if you've heard it. That you know, essentially, uh, loads of black history has been erased uh, by white people right. so they, they they cannot say anything about that mm -hmm. so glorifying a statue and having a glory statue is a lot different to reading about something in a history book i think that's what you're trying to say and that's why i would but get angry yeah just, yeah wanna, let's put it let's let's maybe put it somewhere else because you know i don't i don't want to walk down the street and see that crap yeah, because not just me exercising my will over you. It's just like, well, no, let's just kind of take a poll and see. Because I'm not the only one who lives in this community. You, you know, angry white person, aren't the only person who lives in this community either. Why don't we do the democratic thing and put it to a vote and see what happens? And then if I also, right? yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's quite interesting because um, if you look at the Edward Colston statue, they actually fish that out of the. Um, harbour where it got dumped and there's now actually a new piece of history that represents something else 
they've sort of like changed what it now represents. I think it feeds into sort of like modern idea of well, we're not we're not erasing history. We're just actually looking at it for what it is, and then creating a new history. Well, a look the present, but which will become history when we look back at it. And maybe I think that's that- a really interesting idea, Ed. Actually, I like that. And I think if you did have any uh, statues of the, the soldiers that Damon were talking about up, they should be, you know, like, you know, cut in half or something to represent the, the dawn of a new age and the crushing of stereotypes. That's what I think. But yeah. so anyway. How, you know, we generally, we, we normally don't have problem with updates. You know, mm. you update your wardrobe, you update your software package, you get a new car, you update your education. But when it comes to updating these divisive, you know, figures in history, so many people have a difficult time with that. And I wonder why that is. It's like, why do you have such a hard time with us looking at those deeds? Those, that is what has happened. But what has changed is how we generally view that. In the olden days, it was okay for women not to vote. Now we look at that and we think, yeah, that's wrong. That's, that's, that shouldn't happen. Let's update our thinking. So why is it so hard for these people to update their thinking? I never because of parents, that. because of parents and, and grandparents and for people essentially, you know, if I, if I said, okay, if someone said to me, okay, we're going to let women vote now. And I went, yeah, yeah, cool. That's fine. I don't really care either way. That's the problem. Okay. If I said yes, and I was an advocate of that, I think that's a really good idea there would be a difference. Now there's too many uh, parents and I've actually not experienced this with my parents, but I've experienced it with people close to me mm-hmm. of people saying, yeah, you know, they've, they've got enough now. We've, we've done a lot and we should just leave it there. And the amount of anger I, I can't even express that boils up in me. It actually makes me really sad to my core that I know people like that, that still have those ways of thinking. So I think that possibly I'm, there are many answers to it. It's not just one thing that's going to change it but it really does need to start with the education of the new generation and the way that we parent our children. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think it also takes an examination of white privilege and I think Mm. more specifically white male privilege because you know, that statement that you made, I've heard people say that, Oh, you know, you black people always complaining. What do you want? You want this, you want that, you want the other, what are you going to want tomorrow? It's just like, Hmm. If you just take a minute and think about the position in your mind that allows you to make that statement, you're giving things to me? Yeah. Okay. How about we have a little bit more equality in this equation <laughs> rather than you like a parent giving me a weekly allowance of money, right? That Because that, that's where it comes from. Equality's I, the right. It doesn't deserve I'm credit. I'm giving you all this stuff out of, you know, the goodness of my heart. And you should be satisfied with, I tell you what, I'll be satisfied when all of this is equal. And if you and if you honestly think that you're giving me something, we really need to have more equality. Yeah. Mm. So white privilege is a thing, right? And I've had a few chats with people. It is. It is. Because, you know, a lot of white people, man, they start thinking, oh, I'm giving up and I'm giving up. It's like, yeah, but dude, you're giving up something that you you didn't even earn. Right. Right. What did you earn? It's interesting. White privilege actually breaks down within white privilege. So it it actually is, is, so there are some white kids that experience more white privilege than other white kids. It's actually how it works. It it, it breaks down into even more factions 
which which make was weird for me because I noticed it when, when you know when I was at school and stuff. You know, it's like oh, this person is related to someone that was good friends with the royal family. Okay, you're going to be a prefect, mm-hmm. right? Great. Okay, but what about this this kid who's here on a scholarship, who's worked his bum off to write, you know, this whole essay on why he should be a good prefect? Well, what's going to happen to him? So I think prejudice is is something. Uh, obviously, it can be split into you know the the black and white issue is a serious one, but it even splits into other than you know denominations that you can even see the mental mindset of thinking as simply as this person isn't as good as me. I think it's shocking, um, and I can understand why people. It will be a fight that will go on for years and years and years until it gets set right. Absolutely, because you know you think about it, right? You've got whatever it is you have, your, you've got your privilege, you've got your, your clothes, your car, and somebody's coming along who wants to take it from you, you're going to hold on to that with both hands. But if you just take a minute and think like, okay, what, what, are, they, what are they really asking for here? Have you taken something from them? Are they trying to get it back? Did your ancestors take it from their ancestors and they're trying to establish some equality? You put it in context and it takes on a slightly different dimension. The women getting the right to vote is another one that really kind of trips me out too. Because you know, you think about like, oh, these magnanimous white men and they've given you women the right to vote. It's like, no, those women earn that. They earn that right. And it's not, it's not yours to like give. It was never yours to take. That's the issue that I've got with a lot of, and it's, it's white guys, right? Those are the ones who take and now think that they need to, to give. And once they're tired of giving, then all of a sudden the, this, you know, the, the water hose is shut down and you don't get anymore. It's like, that's when I take to the streets. Because my thing is like, you shouldn't have taken it in the first damn place. It is not yours to give to me now, right? Mm. And that's no, I think yeah, I think true true words can be spoken. Ed and I actually uh, had hasn't been released yet, but we've done an episode uh, of a movie review of American History X. Um, yeah, which uh, is is a film that we we both watched and we're both quite you know it, it it's a fantastic film, not just for its acting, but the way it displays the themes not only of race but just family relationships and relationships in general we thought was great i was wondering if you've seen it so i have a story about american history x um (laughs) yet another story so you had asked me a while ago um what was my first job i think so being in la uh, especially for that third year of law school you know i wanted to network and try to figure out a way to, to find a job um, so like London is centered around finance, LA is centered around uh, entertainment. And just through my network, I knew some people who worked in the industry. My first job out of law school was at a movie studio called Savoy Pictures. And I worked in what was called the biz, um, business affairs department. So my job was to read through all these different contracts that the studio had with writers, producers, directors, what do they call above the line talent, actors and things like that. There were a few movies that Savoy had shot but never released. American History X was one of them. And if you go back and you look at the credits, my boss at the time negotiated a deal with, I can't remember who she sold the movie to, but she ended up selling it to another studio who then released it. But if you look at the credits, it'll say, you know, whatever, Paramount or Sony in association with Savoy Pictures. Mm. Savoy was the studio um, that, that originally produced it. So... 
fantastic. I, I really, really did like it. And it's disturbing. As well. It is. Yeah. It was quite a heavy watch. I mean, Ed, Ed, uh, Ed said there was some scenes where, where he really couldn't, um, you know, watch it with like, yeah, you really had to grit your teeth and, uh, and, and, and watch it. But the way, what I liked about the film is it proved one, one thing that I think gives humanity some hope is that the people can change. Oh, yeah. um, and and that that was something that made the film almost a happy film at the end. Obviously, the ending's really sad in the end, but um, but it made it almost happy for a while. You know that seeing that progress can be made. Mm. Um, well, I was wondering what you felt about that theme of progress. Yeah. So what you know, one of the one of the central themes. You're right. Is you know the the character arc of Ed Norton's character. I love that guy. He's such a he's such a great. Yeah, he's actor. such a good actor. Yeah. We haven't seen enough of him. I don't think uh, of late. Nonetheless, um, but what does it take to go undergo that kind of transformation? So for him, he went through two. Right. He went from kind of yeah. normal everyday white boy to becoming this neo-Nazi to realizing the error of his ways. But his latter transformation, I think, is obviously the one. And it's self-awareness. It's like, you know, what, you know, questioning himself, like, what, what the hell do I stand for? Like, what is this? What do I want my legacy to be? And taking a minute and exercising that level of self-awareness is something that not just lawyers, but people, I think, really need to do more of. It's a bigger thing now. You know, we're getting a little bit more um, holistic in our approach to life, I think, nowadays, which is great. But self-awareness is essential because if you don't take a minute every once in a while, stop, question where you are, how you're, how you're doing. You know, you do your own little, like, check-in. How am I doing? You're just going to go off on this path. And before you know it, you're, you know, you, you got the potential to be a monster. We all do. Mm. So it's very important to exercise that that self awareness, and so that's one of the things I really enjoyed about his character. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. I, I I think we we did quite an in depth uh, review of it, yeah. so we won't, we won't go too deep into it. But no, I thought I thought it was a fantastic film, and it it did represent a lot of the issues. You know, there's a scene with his parents, where his parents are saying, "Yeah, but you shouldn't be reading too much of that black literature that Mr. Sweeney gives you. You know, it's all wrong." And that's when he was really young, so you can see how it kind of the pent up rage of. The, his upbringing just brought him to this climax of extreme racism. And then he goes into prison and he realizes that all the white supremacists are hanging out with the black guys and doing deals with them. And he realizes, no, it's not about this. It's just a bunch of losers who have nothing to do and are angry at the world for some reason. And they're just, you know, I thought it was brilliant. Um, but yeah, Edward Norton. Rounders, have you seen Rounders? Oh yeah, yeah. And um, Fight Club. Fight, fight, just fight, real quick about Rounders, man. Honestly, I I like Matt Damon, but I think that there were a number of scenes when the two of them were together where you could really tell that Ed Norton was yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> Matt Damon, man, I love you, brother, but Ed Norton, mm. it, is, it is what it is, right? You know, yeah. I, I'm not an actor. If I were to be in a movie with Matt Damon, he'd outshine me. It's just the way it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Edward Norton is fantastic. Fight Club as well. What's the first rule of Fight Club? Don't talk about Fight Club. Brilliant. Hi, everyone. We're halfway through the podcast game very, very well. I just want to talk to you about the possibility of you becoming the next best public speaker. Have you ever dreamed of being the next Boris Johnson? I bloody well hope not. But at least if you have public speaking skills, you'll be able to get up in front of tens of thousands of people and speak about what you want to speak about. Ed, tell us about Flamank. 
Dramatic Law Society is a great law society that helps get you information about future careers in the legal sector or sectors adjacent to that, if that's what you, you're looking for. They also hold moots, uh, debates, we're getting negotiating, setting up, I think, uh, a little bit of advocacy on the side and other things, getting all that set up. And for the small price of £10, you can be a part of that. If you're not a member of the uni, it's only £15 to join and you get all the same uh, access to the same events, uh, guest lecturers. Uh, Damon comes in to talk about law, but I think at some point you might ask him to come in from law society as well, if that's all right with him. And um, yeah, it's just a great society to be a part of. Yeah, all the links will be in the description at the end of the video. Also, I will be sure to put Ed Dempsey's Instagram involved for all those ladies that feel like looking at a bit of eye candy. Now, back to our guest, Damon Baker. Uh, Damon, going off the, the, the launch pad of, you know, racism, what do you feel about the legalisation of cannabis? Um, I know California it is legal in California, I believe, at the moment. But what do you feel about that spreading across the world? I think it's a really good thing. You know, we, we, you got to think about uh, government resources, right? So on, and, and actually in a legal context as well. So it's one thing to have a law. It's another thing to enforce that law. And when it comes to something like cannabis, you think about, okay, why is it illegal? You have to question that. And you, you mentioned that it might be a racial issue. I totally get that. Mm. Back in the 19, somebody's going to fact check this one, but there was a movie, I think, called Reefer Madness. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think it caused a big stir and people got all nervous and paranoid and all this. And, you know, in the U.S., and I, you know, I can kind of just speak from that one, right? There's, um, there were a lot of laws that were passed in, in like the olden days that were kind of puritanical in their, in their origin. And that needs to be updated. It's just like the U.S. Constitution. That document was drafted over 200 years ago. Yes, it set up the union, but over time, guess what? Things change. People change. Society's mores change. Therefore, our system of laws need to change as well. And so when it comes to legalization of cannabis, you got to think about, okay, what? Number one, what does enforcement look like? What strides is law enforcement going? Like, what are they doing to control this thing? And is it worth it? Because they got limited resources. I, as a taxpayer, would much rather them use their precious, scarce resources on bringing rapists and murderers and child molesters to justice and not frankly a bunch of young people because i'm betting if you look at the demographic of the users it's probably going to be younger people who are using cannabis and you got to think it too about the um like the comparison so if you're not smoking you might be drinking yeah right? exactly and you go to any A&E in this country or emergency room in the U.S. on a Friday or Saturday night, I'm willing to bet you're going to have more alcohol-related violent incidents or people showing up from alcohol-related incidents than you will from people smoking pot. Okay, so I'd much rather legalize pot because it's probably less of a burden on our system than alcohol and Who's it really harming? So take tobacco as the corollary, right? People want to smoke. They want to destroy their lungs. You let them smoke cigarettes. Why not let them get high? 
they're not going to be hurting people. And if you're worried about uh, people smoking pot hurting people, then maybe you need to ban alcohol again, because we tried that in the U.S. with the 18th Amendment. Prohibition, mm, indeed. And then they realized that, that was a, that was a bit about, of a flop, if you don't mind saying. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking about how laws change and how you know viewpoints change and all that. Well, you did it with alcohol. You passed the 18th Amendment, and then you passed the 21st when you abolished abolition, right? So times need to change. And I think that it's a great thing. States like California, Colorado, Nevada. Um, who else? Is Oregon in there? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not too sure. Uh, you have to ask Ed. He's our smart guy. There you go. So good thing. Tax revenues are going to go up. You're going to have law enforcement focused on what I would call real crime, like violent crime. Yeah. And you won't have a generation of people or maybe even a race of people. I think that's where you were going with it, Linus. Mm -hmm. Stigmatized over mm -hmm. something that I think is pretty innocuous. Last thing I want to say about legalization of, of pot. I was talking to my kids about it last night. So my daughter's 12. She'll be 13 next month. My son is 10. And in my daughter's school, she's year eight. They're talking about drugs and getting the kids to understand, you know, not the evils of drugs, but more the risks. And I'm like, okay, that's a good way to pitch it. And so I said, you know, guys, I think it's a really good thing that, that marijuana is legalized. And I gave them my argument as to why. The point is, is am I encouraging them to go and use it? Some people might argue that I am. Is that a bad thing? I'd much rather my kids get high than drunk, frankly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. And I'm not even joking when I say that. Because I think the health, um, uh, the, the, the risks to their health are less than if they're getting hammered and in going out driving and things like that. But anyway, that's another conversation potentially. But we talked about it. And this is just a small little parenting aside. I'd much rather my kids talk to me and feel comfortable talking to me about this stuff than it all have to go underground and they talk secretly. Hide it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. I think uh, that, I mean, my views on cannabis might differ to Ed slightly, but I think that the fact, I, I mean, me personally, I feel safer if I smoke a joint than if I was to get drunk. I've been both. Uh, I don't drink at all pretty much anymore. Um, and I, I haven't really smoked in, in a long, long time. But I think that from my knowledge, the effects on, on your body is much worse when you're drinking alcohol. I mean, a doctor can try and challenge me, but as we said, you know, how many people do you see in A&E with you know, alcohol-related issues compared to how many people we say any with pot-related issues. We had uh, Nick Clark on who was talking about it. I mean, he says that pot's pretty much saved his life. He's a schizophrenic. Mm. Um, and um, he just said that, you know, without it, he, he thinks he'd be dead because it just calms him down. It, it, it mellows him out. I mean, what are your experiences with marijuana personally, if you're comfortable with talking about that? Well, absolutely. So um, when was the first time, this is so fun. Another story, man. Oh, man. <laughs> You're taking That's no, brilliant. Brilliant. I don't know, like 80 years kind of thing. So um, when I was growing up, I skied a lot. My, my parents got into skiing and I started ski racing. Um, and as part of that, I went to a, a three different summer ski camps, one in uh, a place in Oregon called Mount Hood, Oregon, back in the summer of 84. And then I went to Whistler up in Canada in BC in the summer of 85 and the summer of 86. The reason why that's relevant is because the summer of 86 is the first time I smoked pot. But get this, I smoked pot with a Mormon. It was a Mormon guy. <laughs> 
who who I smoked pot with the first time. I didn't get high, but it was really funny to me. I mean, it's like, and his dad was like an arch Mormon. His dad was like a professor at Brigham Young University, which is like the big Mormon university in Salt Lake City. And I, I just thought it was quite ironic that this Mormon kid got me high. Or you know, <laughs> smoke that. But yeah, but I, I have, I, I've, I've smoked. Um, you know, I went through college and everything like that because it was fun. It was social, mm. and I did feel. It's interesting that you say that. I did feel, maybe not more in control, but I did not put myself at risk mm. as much when I was smoking as when I was drunk. Mm. And that's why I'm thinking. You know what? Maybe there's something in that because. What do you do? You smoke, you sit on the couch and you look at TV and you eat a bunch of Doritos. <laughs> Honestly, man, or listen to music. <laughs> I'm not, my, you know, my first thought is not, oh, let me go outside and like drive my car or go and just do some risky behavior. It's the opposite. I just want to chill out. And so um, it, it, it's got a very chilling effect and not, not chilling, like um, um, not in a negative way, but it like, it chills it, it chills you out. Now, granted, you know, I'm almost 50 now. I'm not nearly smoking as much as I used to, but I don't feel the same stigma as I did when I was younger. And I think that that's a good thing. It's like people are kind of cluing in that it ain't that bad. Mm. I think, I think, I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I know personally, you know, if I take a shot of vodka, that night is a, is a right off because I'll definitely take another shot and then probably another and the chances of me going up to my room doing some late night work or planning my next day are nil and the chances of me smashing a window or breaking something or going completely nuts are high you know whereas if you take a tote yeah of course your efficiency is going to be down but still at least you feel as though you're somewhat in control of what you're doing and and what you're getting done you know, so I think that's really good. And it's also proven that it helps with, well, it can have both side effects on anxiety and good things on anxiety. But it's proven that it can help anxiety and, and help with loads of, you know, mental health issues as well. So I think that if if a state or a country hasn't legalized marijuana, you heard it here on the Verdict podcast, you're behind and you need to get with the program. With the race issue, though, for, for black men in America, especially being thrown in jail for, you know, have, being in possession, you know, of a 20 bag or something. Do you think it's just ridiculous? It is. It is. It's a shame. And, you know, and I think in the U.S., and even here, I'd say, too, um, marijuana is very much <clears throat> in parallel with rap culture or urban culture or hip-hop or, you know, whatever, dis, you know, you know the, in, people use other disparaging terms. You know, rap, hip-hop, urban culture, not disparaging. Let me just be clear about that. But... I think that a lot of um, a lot of rappers, you know, they're like they talk about getting high, and what I don't see the problem with that, but I think a lot of suburban white parents really start to draw that connection and get nervous that their you know precious sons and daughters are going to all of a sudden turn into like black people or something. I don't know what they think, frankly. Uh, but yeah, there's this I mean, fear factor that comes in with it. Why? Because. If you smoke pot, you must be a rapper. <gasps> the world's going to end. I think that not all, obviously not all, don't get all excited, but some white parents think that. And oh, well, my experience is the opposite. It's if you're a rapper, you must smoke pot. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of, uh, it can be a bit disconcerting. And the, the, the problem is the people that usually say that usually know 
pretty much F all about what they're talking about and also don't understand when they're putting on a jazz record and going, you know, well, this is the type of music we should be listening to that Louis Armstrong used to smoke a joint every time before he we went on stage. So um, I usually go with the education first and then the dismissal later. But yeah, I think that they there won't be full legalization in America for a while because they use it to what I talked about in one of my records, uh, my Black Lives Matter record is the, you know, new form of slavery, essentially, which is police brutality and, you know, arresting people for marijuana usage. Because in the Constitution, although it states, you know, all men are free, it also states that all men or women should be arrested if they are breaking the law. And marijuana is a way to perceive people as breaking the law and essentially put them in new metaphorical change that is the US prison system, in my opinion. Have you seen the documentary 13? Yeah, by Eva DuVernay. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Don't, I'd recommend it to anyone listening. Absolutely essential viewing. Yeah. I think. Because it yeah, discusses that. Uh, just it takes back to the civil war and sort of like the slavery and then how it changed to lynching, I think was the next one they discussed. Or, so real so real quick on that one. So the thirteenth and fourteenth amendments of the US Constitution, the thirteenth uh, yeah. um outlawed slavery and vestiges of slavery they use. And then the 14th Amendment, there's, there's this very important clause called the Equal Protection Clause. People have equal protection under the law. But then there's this little, um, in the 14th, I'm sorry, in the 13th Amendment, there's this clause that's, I, I really should, we should fact check this one. But yeah. it talks about how no, no person shall be like un, unjustly, in, is it imprisoned? I think so, yeah. But there's a clause in there that basically carves out if you are incarcerated. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Mm. And that clause has been used to amazingly paralyzing effect in the US with specific regard to black males. So the idea there is, is you know, you cannot be mistreated under the law unless you're a prisoner. And so in the US, there has been this uh, a very large amount of not free but cheap labor, almost indentured servitude, right? That has crept up since the mid or no 1863, 1865, something around that time, when the Thirteenth uh, Amendment was passed. Very scary thing because it's all done under the law. I've got one more question just regarding um, cannabis because I know you want to get onto muting and, and the stock market. It's not really about cannabis, more about race. I forgot to ask you earlier. If someone was racist to you, if someone gives you a derogatory comment about the color of your skin or whatever, is your first reaction to be angry and attack them or to educate? It has run the gamut, right? Because I've had okay. a lot of experiences over the years where people have use racist language to me yep and so i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you some of these stories <laughs> because okay. it depends right and like any human being i don't always get it <laughs> sometimes i've gone off the hook and swung at people and got into fights over it uh other times i've been a little bit more measured there was one particular instance i was so proud not just of me but of the other guy so I used to uh, when i was in college for a little short while i was a valet parker of cars you know i'd park cars and it was at a bar. So as you can imagine, a lot of people coming out of that bar were hammered. Mm -hmm. And I got to see some of the worst of humanity when I worked <laughs> valley parking cars at this gym. One night, I'm standing outside 
and I hear this commotion in, uh, um, inside the bar. And I hear, no, I think I, I heard him. I heard this guy first. I heard him go, hey, wait, how are, we, how are we with language on the podcast? Go ahead. Whatever you want to say. Go. Okay, cool. He's like, fuck that nigger. Fuck that nigger. Uh, fuck him. Fuck him. And I was just like, what's going on? And I look and I see this short uh, Asian. So he's like a Chinese American, Korean American, Japanese American guy coming out of the bar. And he has this big white guy friend with him. I wasn't really intimidated by the Asian guy, but the white guy was the issue. I was like, oh, dear. But he wasn't saying anything. He was just kind of like hustling the guy out. Fuck that nigger. And so I thought, wow. There's obviously a problem that the Asian man is having with a man of color in the bar. That was it. So it was logic that was kicked in at that point. And by instinct, I took my hands, I put them in my pockets, and I walked up to the guy. And remember, his back is to me because he's looking in the bar. And I, and I kind of nudge him like this. And I took a step back. As soon as he turned around, he was on the defensive because he thought I was going to like attack him. Why? Because I'm a black man and he's using the N-word. And, and I hands in my pockets, right? And I said something like, hey, man, you're obviously having a problem with the black man inside the bar. I said, but by using that term, you're not only offending him, you're offending me. And I had nothing to do with it. Mm. And at that moment, dude, it was, it was really, I felt so proud like I said, not just to me, but of him, because his whole demeanor changed and his shoulders dropped. And he said, you're right. I'm sorry. And that could have turned into a very negative interaction, probably for me, because if I'd attacked the small Asian guy, the big white guy would have taken me out. right? <laughs> but he and I both learned something in that moment. Now, this happened when I was about 19. That was 30 years ago, and I still remember it. All that to say, it depends on the situation. Mm. But logic can prevail. Mm. That's my message there. I think that's a really strong story, actually. I'm really glad you told that story. And it's really interesting. Um, and not, not to just completely move away from, from, from the racism talk, but I know you did want to talk about muting. So what, what were your experiences of muting at uni? Oh, uh, no, not at uni, at law school for us. Oh, law school. Because, you know, in the U.S. it's different. We have four or five yeah. years of uni, and then we have three years of just dedicated law school. And moot court and mock trial were big things. And I, um, actually, I will tell you this one because there's a public speaking angle. First year of law school, we all had to do what was called moot court, which is basically appellate level argument. So mock trial is different. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. a trial. So, you know, you have witnesses who are like your friends and things like that, and you have to produce evidence and all that. But in moot court, which is the appellate level, you're only arguing the law. Did the lower court apply the right law? Did they apply the law correctly? Yes or no. And so we had to do moot court first year of school. Because we didn't know what we were doing, they paired, uh, we, so I was me and a teammate, and they paired us off with a team of older law students so that they could kind of guide us on how to be better in the moot court mm. setting. So they were like tutors in a way. So they said, okay, for the first time we all meet, it's gonna be our team, another team, and the two older students. And we want you to prepare just like a five minute um, speech of some type, just so we can get a feel for how you are public speaking. And I prepared something and I went in and it was a room of six people, right? But I was so nervous. I was 
flubbing my words. And I remember thinking, I'm like, what the hell is going on? Because, you know, I have a high opinion of myself. Why not? And I'm like, dude, come on. You're not bringing it. You are not bringing it. Yeah. I'm angry with myself. And I made a promise in that moment. I was like, I am never going to be this nervous when I'm public speaking ever again. And I've taken opportunities to get into the public speaking. I really think it's a key skill because it's not just standing up in front of a room of people. There's preparation, there's confidence, there's clarity of thought. There's so many things that you bring to bear when you do public speaking. And now, um, you know, now I'm like, give me the mic, you know, 200 people. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I got something to say. <laughs> I want to talk. <laughs> so I really Hello, do. America. <laughs> <laughs> You know, give me the mic. <laughs> I do. I really enjoy it now. And it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten to this point had it not been for that um, formative experience back when mm. I was first in law school. So, yes, there's, uh, there's that angle. Public speaking, yeah. good thing. Because mm. during yeah, so secondary everyone school, everyone join the Public Speaking Society. Link will be in the description. You've heard what Damon said. It's crucial. It's crucial. And sorry, then I'm going to jump on the moot court thing. And so then I, I really did enjoy moot courts. And I did a couple of moot court competitions when I was in first year. And our, our team didn't do so well. I mean, we got to like the quarterfinals or something like that, but I really enjoyed it. And so then second year, there was the opportunity to join um, like a national moot court competition. And so, you know, each school would put together like one or two teams and then send them to the nationals. And our team was invited to, I ended up going to Chicago that year. And I argued, and, you know, there, there were only a couple of rounds that our team did at that, at that point. But one of the rounds, I, I was scored like the highest. And I felt really good about that because it was like a national level competition. You know, I held my shit together. Mm. <laughs> right? I did. And it's just, it was a confidence booster, but it was also a great opportunity just to see how other people do it. And that's yeah. another thing I'm just going to say about one of the differences I've noticed in law school, uh, no, undergrad law school, business school. Undergrad, what did I really learn? I learned discipline. I learned how to socialize. I learned independence. I don't remember a lot of the material I learned in undergrad. In law school, I learned a way of thinking, spot the issue, try to keep focused, um, knowing the law is essential. <laughs> but I learned a way of thinking and a way of kind of holding myself. But in business school, half of what I learned was in the classroom, but the other half I learned from the other students. And so I really enjoyed each of those three for, for that reason, you know, the learning and the different ways and the different people. And, you know, each one has its benefit, uh, I must say, but in law school, in moot court, highly recommend it. it it was it was a lot of fun and it's a challenge you know you get yourself out of your comfort zone you never know what new skill you're gonna pick up well i was just gonna say in like public speaking's never been one of my fortes personally it's not something i've ever really liked doing but i got to uni the law business course and you get there and you've met anton mm -hmm. the meeting director for, for mank who I'd say was born to talk in front of an audience. And Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you start realising how important it is to be able to get up on stage and be elegant in how you talk and be able to hold a room captive with your words, especially as a lawyer, because it's something, if you're a barrister, like uh, Linus wants to be, 
it's something you have to be able to do regularly. So yeah, I think personally, it's just going out of your way to sort of like get yourself to that stage, sort of like mm-hmm. consciously aware of the fact that yeah, you might be nervous, but once you get up on stage, you just got to perform the job and do. I would actually add, like to add something to that, Ed. Um, specifically, and someone I came to uni with extreme experience in, in public speaking and thinking that I was, you know, it's a bomb at, at public speaking, and nothing could phase me because I've spoken and rapped in front of crowds of you know great numbers of people. But Anton taught me something about public speaking that I found quite interesting because when I watched him in court. I watched him. I was against him. I was a legal counsel against Anton. And the way he formulates an argument and the words he uses and the, his posture were things that I like. I tried to add to my repertoire after watching Anton. And I think that speaks volumes to something that many people don't think about with regards to law. It's not just about you and the way you c- convey your argument you also have to consider the way the opposition is conveying their argument and the way they're using their public speaking skills Mm -hmm. because you may find yourself being disadvantaged from the type of experience you've had with public speaking skills mine was speeches getting up on stage going now confidence is great but in a court the type of public speaking you need is much more refined and much more narrow. And Anton's been helping me with, with my public speaking because he is someone that, that in a court, he is the, the boss, the don, when it when it comes to public speaking. But yeah. Well, so you developed your public speaking uh, skills, Damon. What do you think of my method of essentially, if someone is bad at public speaking or is nervous, essentially just putting them in front of bigger and bigger crowds until they learn to deal with it, essentially? Well, like any skill, you need to have, I think, training, right? You need to, and I've done that a number of times. I've just gone on courses, as it were. I mean, I've been fortunate because working in investment banks in London, I had access to a lot of public speaking courses. Some of them were good. Some of them were crap. But in the end, it was, it was you know, learning from someone. So it's interesting that you, you make that point about Anton, because it also made me think of another context that I've been in, which, uh, where I experienced accelerated learning, but it's a little bit non-standard. So for about 10 years, I did, uh, this, this fighting style called Krav Maga. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Right. And one of the things about any, whatever you take, I think self-defense is good, but any, anytime you're sparring with someone else, in your context, you were verbally sparring with Anton. But anytime you're sparring with somebody else, you learn little tricks, little things. And it's not like classroom learning, right? Mm-hmm. It's learning by doing. It's learning by getting your ass kicked. It's learning by losing. And But it's in real time. I didn't lose. I just want to make that quite clear. I did, I did not lose. I, I was on the other team. You did lose. No, 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 no. We're not getting into no. this. I reduced the settlement down by like, 30 grand. I, I was a draw at best. How was that? You can't make stuff no, up. No, hey, we're not discussing this now, okay? We'll discuss it with Anton again. I did not lose. All right, Ed, continue, Damien. Sorry. Ed, I believe you, Ed. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's my client one. So, so in, in, in Krav or in moot court or mock trial settings, you learn so much about another person. And what does that require, right? It requires self-awareness and it requires you to put your ego in the back seat. 
because you, you don't know everything. Mm. <laughs> and even if you think you know a lot, that's great. You still have more to learn. And so I think it's essential that you uh, that you create that space to where you can learn from your from your colleagues and from others. I think it's there, there have been there have been many times in my life where I, you know I go into something thinking, well, you know, this is going to be you know, whatever, mate. Yeah, I'm just going to go up there, stand up, do my thing, and come out. And I, there was a you know a public speaking competition at school, and I went in, I did a speech. It was. Fine. I, I never have a paper with me or anything. I just kind of freestyle it after rehearsing it over and over again. And I lost. I came last, dead last. And I, it was like the worst experience of my life. But instead of cowering in the corner and moping about it, I tried to learn and I ended up winning like the, the big competition at school. And if I hadn't learned from my opponents, I went up and spoke to them. I, I wanted to know what they did differently to me. Was it hand gestures? What was it? Was it posture? And if I hadn't done that, I, I wouldn't have ended up winning the big competition. So I think what you're saying about opponents is, is really important. Tell me, do you watch MMA? You a- uh, sometimes I do. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I, do. I can't help it, man. I'm like, I shouldn't want, but you know, I, I like watching it sometimes, not, not yeah. a lot. But Are you a fan of Conor McGregor? <laughs> good fighter, but he's just too much of a showman. I think it's like, you know, you, you have to have some humility. I think you have to have, I think he needs to have a lot more respect for his opponents. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've heard from people that, you know, he actually does have a great deal of respect for his opponents after. And, um, but, but there's a, there's a, yeah, but the mental game that he, he plays is, is, is one that I think is actually transferable to the law. And it's not a mental game as in going, who the fuck is this guy? No, it's, it's none of that, but it's more, you know, are you, what do you feel about being presentable? So it's a mental game. If you're going in a negotiation room with a big company and you're representing counsel, you know, coming in with shirt button undone, for example, coming in with, you know, not having a tie done up fully, not having your, you know, your suit ironed well. What, what do you feel about that? That's kind of a mental game. It, it is. But see, to me, I think the gamesmanship is with yourself. I think that's where it's more effective. Okay. Because what do you have control over? You. You don't have control over how they perceive you. Now, I get that you've got to, you know, you, you got to get your suit and you got to look right and all that stuff. But what I've found is more useful is when I'm, when I'm getting suited up, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going into battle. It's, it's mm-hmm. my mental preparation that matters more than are they going to like my suit or are they going to be intimidated by my suit? I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. I feel good going into that room. That's all that matters. Mm, it's not about looking like a million dollars it's about feeling like a million dollars i can't tell you how many times i've been on the other side and it you know i was not um i was never in a courtroom as a lawyer right for me it was always more transactional i'd rather get to a deal than beat the other person up but i have been in some situations that were adversarial and i've noticed that a lot of times and it's the guys almost always the guys come in like oh i'm all that uh and yeah they're so interested in being all pumped up and puffed up and trying to intimidate me that they lose sight of the key issue. And man, there was, um, you know, the analogy there is, is you the, the big fighter who comes in talking all this shit and the quiet one is just watching, mm. looking for the weakness, waiting for his or her moment to strike at that weak point. And nine times out of 10, they'll hit it. Yeah. 
and the you know Goliath will just collapse mm. and then wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I went to court in Truro and I watched two barristers. Um, there was this old guy, okay, really not not old as in ancient, but he was clearly a seasoned barrister. You know, the grey hair. Nice, nice, nice suit, double-breasted. Really appreciated it. And then the young guy comes in, and he's like, "Yeah, looking around, like, yeah, what's going on here? You know, like, I'm ready." To, I'm yeah. the man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, um, the young guy does a really good argument. He does it very well. He's very aggressive stance, though, really confrontational. And the old guy just comes in with this very soothing tone, says, "You know, good morning, Your Honor. I just wanted to say thank you for taking this time to." hear our quarrel and he just talks and talks and he talks so charmingly he's talking to this they have this witness and this witness is so just captured by this barrister that she doesn't realize she ends up giving herself up accidentally and the barrister barrister suddenly switches up and goes oh so you are saying it just like goes off and i'm like that's the answer being the charming, calm, and measured person rather than coming in all guns blazing. And that young barrister was like looking around like he couldn't believe what had just happened. And yeah. You got backhanded. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, different styles for different folks. Sometimes that very aggressive style works. It depends on the context, right? Mm. I've seen that style to great effect in a non-courtroom setting. So like in settlement negotiations. Mm. There's a, in fact, the, the Dallas thing, just real quick. Uh, one of my buddies was saying there's a couple of lawyers in Dallas who are known for just being like that, like junkyard dogs. And the other side just gets so fed up with how obnoxious they are. They're just like, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I just fell for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes I think, I think that's as well. It's about knowing your audience, which is probably the, the skill that I hold in greatest regard for anything I do is, you know, knowing who you're actually conveying a message to. So the way that, you know, Ed and I would conduct ourselves in court is a lot different to the way we conduct ourselves over, you know, a podcast mm-hmm. or the way in which, you know, I conduct myself doing a public, a public speaking, you know, thing or a speech is a lot different to how I'd be on stage if I'm performing. So I think it's all about knowing who who your target audience is or who your clients are or what goal you're essentially trying to achieve. So I find that really interesting. It's good hearing first-hand experience, you know, about that. Um, let's move on to the stock market. Yeah, yeah. Have you got a portfolio running at the moment, Damien? Yeah, yeah, I do. So look, so let me tell you about my my approach to investing, right? So um I've been working in banks in London for 17. 17 and a half years, I think now. Mm. And I've learned a little bit. Mm. I've learned enough to be dangerous, right? (laughs) (laughs) But for me, you know, like my, my preferred method of of investing is using ETFs, exchange traded funds. The reason why I like exchange traded funds is because you can buy basically one stock like you would a BT share or, um, you know, Apple share. But with an ETF, you get diversified exposure. You have to choose the right ETF, right? But I like ETFs. You know, you have what's called intraday liquidity. You can buy and sell in the same day. You're not locked into something for a long time. And at least I can be pretty specific about what exposure I want. So there's, there's another guy, and you have to look this dude up in, in the background. His name is Ray Dalio. 
And Ray Dalio runs a very large hedge fund. He's got over 100 billion assets under management. And he's he's smart, smart guy. And he has, at one point in his life, when did he do this? It was a few years ago. He kind of exposed some of his uh, approaches to investing. And he came up with like some portfolio suggestions. So, you know, pie chart, right? You might want to think about having 60% in fixed income, 30% in equities, maybe 10% in commodities, right? I'm, I'm being general here. But I took one of Ray Dalio's kind of like formulaic um, portfolios and I applied it to, to my life. So let's just take Say as an example. He said you might want to have 60% in equities. Oh, no, actually, he said 60% fixed income. Sorry. So I was like, okay, but you know, what bonds do I want? Do I want corporate bond exposure? Do I want government bond exposure? If so, what geography, right? So for me, um, I've got a couple of different fixed income ETF holdings. One is on inflation-linked gilts. The other is on uh, like 15-year and more gilts. So when you're thinking about bonds, oftentimes people will ask you like duration. You have to look this up in the background, but it's basically when do those bonds come mature? Have you guys heard of the yield curve? You look um, I've, I've probably heard of a, a similar term. I don't know. Is this, is this an American term? Are you talking about when uh, the yield hits its like kind of maximum velocity? No. So what you do is, is it's in bond. Think about uh, bond markets. Think about government okay. bond markets, right? And yeah. you have government bonds that are short dated. So, you know, they come mature next year or what have you. And then you have government bonds that are mid and then longer dated. And so oftentimes, depending on how volatile a particular economy is, the yield curve will change because people will be buying longer dated bonds or they'll be buying more short dated bonds. But the yield curve in government bonds, at least, changes given changes in demand, typical supply demand stuff. So oftentimes, if people are really nervous about what's going on in an economy, they'll say that the yield curve is inverted, which means that short-dated bonds are more in favor than longer-dated bonds. Why? Because people are really nervous about what's happening tomorrow. But if things are pretty comfortable, and that's kind of like the normal state of affairs, then your yield curve will show longer-dated government bonds having a higher yield. People are willing to wait a little bit longer. They're not feeling they're living in a very stressful or risky time. Uh, massive overgeneralization. But the point is, start looking into yield curve, start looking into duration, and you'll understand um, how bond market dynamics are. So taking that, keeping that in mind, I was like, what kind of fixed income bond exposure am I looking for? I wanted government, and I wanted a mix. So I wanted the inflation-linked part, obvious reasons. Inflation goes up, my return goes up. It's low risk stuff. I'm not going to say no risk. It's low risk. Mm. And then I also wanted like the 15 year. Why? Because I'm looking at retiring in more than 15 years. I'm going to change that around. But that's why I started with fixed income. On the equity side, it's like, okay, what equity exposure do I want? So then you think thematically, right? I love renewable energy. And I was looking around for clean energy ETFs specifically. So I've, I've bought into a clean energy ETF. I've bought into, I think I've got an S&P, you know, the S&P. 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got a clean energy um, iShares government tracker bond. And then I've got um, the property. And what was the other one? What did you mention after clean energy? 
S&P 500. Yeah, an S&P 500. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but they're like, I think that I like to consider them like my, my foundation ones. So like, as in my ones that are like always going to be there, like, or maybe add an extra pound a year or whatever, and just see where that goes. Yeah. You know, and then you've got your speculative ones. You've got a couple of speculative ones. And then you've got, you know, a few large companies that you like to keep balanced as possible. You know, one goes up, one goes down and swapping that around. But I don't know. Invest in single stocks. To me, that's, uh, you know, I'm not an equity analyst. That's not what I do. Um, I've got some some tech exposure too. So like a tech kind of ETF. So I've got, you know, in that'll be the big ones, Facebook, Apple. Yeah. Amazon, that kind of thing. Netflix, I think, is in there too. But it's all a fund. So I don't have to worry about picking individual stocks. I buy one ETF and I get diversified exposure. So I've got uh, those equities. And then I've got a little bit in gold. And then um, there's another one that's, oh, a general, general commodities ETF. Now, rebalancing is easy, right? Because I can buy and sell stuff in a day. And that's not a big problem. Earlier in my life, so about 10 years ago, I had more risky assets because I was like, I'm gonna go. I mean, I had, you know, like, you know, China equity exposure, which brought me 40% up one year and then it started to drop. And so I got out of it. But I didn't want to get into that game of watching markets every single day and worrying about if I had my exposure mm. right. So when the Dalio thing came up, I thought, you know what, let me just do that, take a portfolio view. Things are going to go up and down on a daily basis. I'm not too worried about it because my time horizon is a little bit longer. And so that's, that's one of the key messages there is think about your time horizon. You guys are young. You, you can do all kinds of risky trades right now. Yeah, well, it's time to make mistakes now when you're dealing with 15 yeah. quid rather than like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I can't even imagine it. Just be like, oh, my God. Uh, we were talking with John. We, we talked with John a lot about this. He's saying like, it takes a, a certain amount of mental dexterity to watch something plummet. Mm-hmm. So let's say I've got like and a, a Tesla. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's say I've got a Tesla share, like, and I'm watching it just plummet and plummet. It's going from minus one pound to minus five pound. You know, it's just going down and down. You know, what do I do? Well, you know, the person that's not mentally strong would, would sell and they'd be wrong. They, they'd lose that money. But the person that is mentally strong would sell their Amazon shares, which are up, and buy more Tesla and watch it go down even more. <laughs> um, but, it, but yeah, it was interesting talking to him because he was talking about similar stuff to you, you know, the rebalancing, you know, keeping a balanced portfolio, how important that is, and having a strategy and making mistakes when you're young <laughs> and when you're not dealing with massive funds. That's right. So, yeah. There's another term you should look up called mean reversion. Hmm? I'm, I'm writing these down, so I'll just I'll write this one I think down that's an well. important concept to kind of get your head around because it helps you weather the storm. You know, stock markets are going to, they're, they're volatile. They go up and they go down. But if you look on the long term, so I'm not sure if maybe from your point of view, it's this way. They've, they've tracked up. There's only one direction. The stock markets have gone over the last 80 years, right? Up. There's been downs, but they are... Um, Blips. Local <laughs> nature. Yeah. And so if you think that stock markets, if you believe in what they've done over the last, you know, almost century, if you think that trend is going to continue, you can weather those those temporary lows. Because why? Performance will tend to revert to the mean. 
And if the mean is on an upward trajectory, you can ride out the storm because you know at some point in the future, maybe not next year even, it's going to go up. Mm. So I'm not too, too worried about, um, about volatility. But I also kind of manage volatility based on my holdings. So you know, I've got fixed income, I've got some equity, a little bit of commodities and whatnot. But I'm not a big believer in taking massive bets on one company. I'm not a hedge yeah. I don't think like a hedge fund guy does. And that's another- Do you not, do you not, do you not um, have Tesla shares? I don't have Tesla shares. Why not? Because I don't do single stocks. Yeah. But mm. so Tesla yeah. might be a component in one of my ETFs. I'm trying to think of which one it would even be. I was thinking it must be with the way Tesla's performing at the moment. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's in any of my ETFs, frankly, but I don't care because like anything, there's so many opportunities, you know, I don't make money on Tesla. Okay. I didn't, you know, I didn't make money when, when Facebook went. Yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? You can't live your life thinking about all the missed opportunities. Oh, you can live your life that way, but it's not going to be very cool. You'll lose. Um, can I do a word association with you, David? Let's do it. Let's do it. You're going to edit this all out, right? <laughs> Money. Something I want more of. Risk. Take it, but be smart about it. Mental health. Absolutely essential to live a full life. Education. Absolutely essential to live a full life. Networking. Absolutely essential to living a full life. But let me give you a little bit more on that one. Honestly, networking is not just a way to open up opportunities. It's a way for you to help other people. Let me just give a quick word on networking because I think it's something a lot of young people miss is you think, what can that person do for me? No way. When you're networking, think, what can I do for that person? You have to make yourself valuable to other people in order for your network to find value in you, right? And then people will come out of the woodwork and start to, to ask you questions and provide you opportunities. But you have to give, you have to serve first. That's one of the key messages of networking. That's similar to what Stephen was saying, wasn't it, Ed? Uh, yeah, yesterday we were talking to a venture capitalist who basically just reflected what you were saying. We discussed it a bit more than because it's like quite a big bit of his um, job relies around networking, but like to the extremes where he met. He worked for Channel 4 and then worked for um, a venture capital firm. So we knew, like Jennifer Aniston, to local tech startups. It was a really wide network of people, but he reflected the same thing. It's making sure that it works both ways, making sure that you don't just like spread your bets. Yeah, it's not as simple as just going, oh, yeah, can I get some work experience, please? He said it's more, it's more, but someone's going to be more interested in you if you go, look, I'm really interested in what you do here. I've actually done some research here on that part of your market, and I thought it might be interesting if I present that to you. It's about starting the conversation, which is what I think you're trying to say, Damien. Yeah, it's, it's you know, showing, showing value, I think, demonstrating value to people is so much more, you're going to have more stickability. Then if you go in, like, what can you do for me? It's like, oh, please, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Should I continue? Yeah. Alcohol. Something I enjoy drinking, just not as much as before. Drugs. Something I sometimes engage in, but not as much as before. <laughs> Stock. Stock. Learn before you buy. Tax. Hmm. Mm. 
based on fundamental fairness, and I do not mind paying my fair share. Okay, interesting. London. Great place to be in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, but proceed with caution. Constitution. Backbone of any worthwhile society. Racism. Racism? Mm -hmm. Cancerous. I agree. Debt. Can provide you opportunities in the short term, but get rid of it as quickly as you can so that it does not become a cancer to your long-term growth and potential. And finally, legacy. Legacy, something I work on every day. Hope I get it right. In the end, my kids are going to be the final arbiters of my legacy. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I've only got one more question, but I'm going to let Ed uh, ask, ask questions um, if he's got any before we start to wrap it up. Yeah, I, I was just, yeah, uh, I was just, the answers to some of the sort of like, uh, word associations, associations I thought were quite interesting, especially London one. Do you think there's maybe somewhere where when you get a bit older and you start moving towards the countryside or it's like living your life a bit separate from the hustle and bustle of the city? Well, so, so um, I, I'm a big believer in having a diversity of, of friends and experiences. And if you put yourself in one place for too long, you're not doing yourself a service. Uh, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? So London, like LA, is a great city to be in, but for a limited amount of time, because it's just one place in this amazing world of ours. So that's why I say great place to be in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, but proceed with caution because before you know it, you could be 70 years old, still in London, and you're missing out a lot. So I, it's a great place, fantastic place, and I think you should spend time there. But just know that it ain't the only great place on earth. Uh, uh, right. You know what? Before we go, debt. That's a big one, I think. Oh, yeah, debt. Honestly, debt is... It's seductive in some ways. It's easy money up front. You can use it to finance your education, to buy a car, to buy a house. But from personal experience, I, I wasn't good managing my personal debt. Yeah, you said that America, Americans' attitude to debt is a lot different to the UK in our previous conversation. Big time. We're a lot more cavalier about it, right? Oh, yeah, I'm in debt. Yeah, whatever. Credit cards. How many do you have? Oh, four or five of them. It's not a big deal. I'll pay it off one day. And dude, the amount of money I've paid on interest, I could have bought a number of rental properties. <laughs> but instead I'm paying debt, right? So I, it is seductive. It's so easy to get into and it's a lot harder to get out of than a lot of people think. Mm. As well as things, um, you know, there were people who would say, oh, you gotta be careful. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And typical hard headed 20 year old, I know everything, you old fool, what are you talking about? And then when it hit me a little later in life, I was like, wow, you know what? They were right. It's so easy for me to say this. It's a lot harder for you to implement it. But just run the numbers and think about where you would rather your money go to in the future, to interest payments or to buying lovely suits or going on killer holidays and things like that. I had to make, I had to make a lot of changes in my spending over the last two years because of my debt load and I do regret it. 
it's not the end of the world. You know, I've got, I think, you know, decent earning potential and I can pay it back and have paid a lot of it. But I just think about the opportunity cost. There's a lot I put on interest. Damn, I could have gone to Antarctica. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's proceed. I've with got, I've, I've got one more question for you, Damon. Um, if if you were a diamond, right? Okay, so I want you to picture yourself as a diamond, right? And there are two events for you as a diamond in your life. One of them is you getting a shine, you becoming, you know, one of the greatest built-up diamonds in the world. And the other is the diamond smashing on the floor and shattering into a million pieces. Are there two events that can like transfer those pictures in your mind to your life? Like, can you connect up those dots? To where I was, where I shined, and then another one where I was, yeah, like I'd been smashed into a million pieces. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So one of them, um, I mean, there's a lot of shining moments. Um, mm. I, it, you know, in, in um, you know, in my more immediate past, it's it's the birth of my children. So so some people might not find value in this, but I do. I was present and an active participant in the births of both of my kids. That to me is a real source of pride. You know, I was there for them, and I said to each of them when they when they came out of my my ex wife when she first delivered them, each of them I said, "Welcome to the world." And, you know, they didn't understand me. They didn't understand words at that point. But to have been in the room and been involved uh, during the birth of my children were experiences that made me feel on, on top of a mountain. I felt great. Absolutely great. And I love my kids dearly. So many lessons I want to teach them. But it started in those moments when they first came into this world. Mm. Where I felt like a million pieces busted. Honestly, that's in my recent past as well. It's... It was pre-COVID and the industry that I was, or like the sub-industry I was working in in London, I was doing a lot of regulatory consulting work. I would work as a consultant to banks and that market dried up and it felt like it dried up overnight. But what did not dry up were my bills. And I was sitting there like, I got this pot of money and it's dwindling quickly because I was spending way too much. And there were a number of nights where I was really worried about not putting food on the table. It didn't get that bad, but it got real tough, man. Mm. Because, you know, I was running out of money. And how am I going to pay for all this stuff? And how am I going to be able to support not just me, but my ex-wife? And, and I started to think, you know, what have I done? What have I done here? You know, I'm not in jail or I haven't killed anybody, but this isn't the life I promised you 10 years ago we'd be living. Mm. That was a hard conversation that I had to have with myself. But the key is, is what did I do after that? So I had to have, you know, self-awareness kicked in. I had to make some changes, but that was it. So luckily it's not me killing someone or, or me going to jail. It's not that level of, of, um, of falling that I've had to deal with. For me, it was just more financial. And it was me being financially irresponsible. And I had to face up to that shit and make some changes. Well, I'm really glad that you did. It shows uh, true dexterity and uh, a lot of self-awareness, which I think integrity and self-awareness are, are skills that lawyers and many careers alike, it's, it's required heavily. Um, I'd like to thank you, you know, from, from both Exeter and the Verdict Podcast for, for being such a great guest and constantly coming in to see us and talking to us about your your 
great life and everything you've done and all your career and everything. It's been so interesting. Uh, thank you so much, Damon. Thanks, thanks Thank for having you. me on. Thanks for listening to me ramble for a couple of hours. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Brilliant. It's not, yeah, not it's ramble brilliant. at all. <laughs> so, Ed, um, what did you think of Damon Baker? I mean, we know him quite well. We've got a bit of a rapport yeah. with him, but it was a brilliant episode, I thought. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed talking to him. Such a knowledgeable and well-spoken uh, chap that it's just, we always discuss something of interest because yeah. we did a call like this um, in August when we were discussing having him as a guest. And in, it went to an hour and a half because we just all got yeah. so in, ingratiated. Engaged. He's so engaging. Yeah. He's so engaging, a, yeah. I think it's his tranquil voice and his calmness yeah. that just makes you think like, you know, you're on some Chesterfield couch with a cigar and a nice a nice scotch and you're just chilling out with, you know, yeah, a guy definitely. you've known for years. You know, it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> I, I, he's one of my favourite type of guests. I think it went really well. Um, we here at The Verdict Podcast are really interested in you guys listening to our content and benefiting from our content. And that is why we're always really informative and leave our links in the description of the video. Obviously, Ed had a banging night out last night and was slightly hangover, but it didn't affect his ability to provide very insightful comments. Our Instagrams, the Verdicts Instagram, the YouTube, the Facebook, and the LinkedIn will all be dropped in at the end of the video. And before we sign off, we've just got to say that Flamank and the Public Speaking Society are perfect opportunities for law students, business students, and any type of student, as it will give you skills that are valuable in the workplace. I'd just like to say a warm goodbye from me, Linus Leo Lampy, the Triple L. Sign from me, Edward Dempsey. And we will see you soon. Thank you.